Welcome to the Tragedy Girls podcast. I mean, the Final Girls podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're currently in the last handful of episodes of our fourth series exploring all things teen horror, very much expanding the definition of what makes a teen horror film, how they've evolved, and particularly focusing on why teenagers and teenage girls make for some of the most compelling protagonists and villains of the genre. And there's no film that combines all of those elements more than 2017's Tragedy Girls. Joining me to go deep, deep on this film and the moment in horror history when it landed on our screens is recurring guest and friend of the podcast, Jordan Cruciola. A quick reminder before we dive in, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the UK, and you can also support our work on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the final girls. If you don't want to support us though, that's fine, but if you can take a few seconds to leave us a review, hopefully a positive one, on either Apple or Spotify podcasts, I deeply appreciate that and it really helps people discover the show. And as usual, do keep in mind that we spoil everything about the film pretty much from the very beginning. So if you haven't seen it yet, keep that in mind if you're spoiler averse. I would say though, considering the Tragedy Girls never got a UK release, and if you need to be convinced to discover and find this film, then do listen to this episode. And we keep it pretty light on the plot-specific spoilers, but we do talk about the film as a whole from the very first moment. And with all of that said, please enjoy our take on Tragedy Girls. Now that we're recording, you can tell me off about using clean feed instead of Zoom and not being able to see each other's faces, Jordan. It uh, it feels like a slight against our friendship. <laughs> it, feel, it, feels, it feels like I've, you know what? It feels like I've been demoted. That's what it feels like. I'm like, oh, never. There it is. Never. Yeah, no, I'm, this is, this is so Anna can just do a bunch of stuff in the background and just like, have, I'm being, I'm being left on read in, in the Absolutely would guys. never. Dude, we were joking about before, and I just want this, this tone to continue throughout the recording <laughs> of this episode, Jordan, because you did say, if I'm allowed to quote you, that this was the only time in our friendship that you've yeah. taken a tone with me. Yeah, and only I kind of dig it. Kind of dig it. <laughs> and I've 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 shot myself in the ass apparently by being like, God damn it! Like, God, I spend all this time. I spend all this time with this crush on Anna as my dear friend, being like, Oh, I hope the pretty popular girl likes me more. And then I put myself in a position where I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to say fuck you for a minute. And she's like, oh, good. And I'm like, oh, there's no winning. There's no, no winning. Everything is winning with us, Jordan. That's <laughs> yeah, the I mean, point. Overall, that is true. But imagine, <laughs> I, you know, guys, you've heard me talk on, on Anna's pods a lot of times now, but like me as a person, I was so 
I was so excited that I was going to see my friend today. And then I get a I get a link to a thing that I don't know what it is. And it is this clean feed <laughs> interface. And there's just no visual component. And I'm like, what? Like, oh, we're not hanging out? Like, But we are hanging out. This know, is like in high school. You so know, we're weird. doing the thing when we're talking on the phone for hours. <laughs> Obviously, we've spoken for the full 90 minutes before hitting yeah. record. Yeah. As, as it is law. As it is the Cruciola law. Like, yeah, no. Whenever, whenever I schedule a recording, so I always schedule them for double the time because that's what happens. And I cherish that. <laughs> and it's like speaking on the phone with a friend, like in high school. Well, you know, we're women of a certain age. So like in high school, I, w- <laughs> I would talk on the, on the landline phone with, with my two friends <laughs> that I oh, had yeah. in high school. And this is kind of the same, but instead of a landline phone, we have a very expensive laptop and microphones. <laughs> I have been, um, because I, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm a, de- I'm a demanding, but I would say I am at once demanding, but not high maintenance about hanging out with my friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like there's not, there's not like a lot of conditions on it. It's not hard to like set a plan with me. It's not like, oh God, it's always, it's always something with Jordan. But like, no, I'm very easy to spend time with, to make make time with. Um, I I want a lot of time. I want a lot of time, and I want it as often as I can have it. And so, most of my interactions with like my my dearest friends, like the lead up to them is me like negotiating how much I can press for more of their time without like becoming uh, annoying about it. It's a, it's a balance I've learned throughout my life and my nearing 37 years. Um, and I have a friend who recently, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, uh, Botcast co-host Margot Carlson, actually, she uh, got COVID recently. So she's been in quarantine for two weeks. And you could ask me how long it's been. And I'd be like, I don't know, fucking six months since I've seen her. It's been two weeks. And I'm like, this is some <laughs> bullshit. And like my texts to her are like, how do I convey that this has been so stupid without like making her feel responsible for me being annoyed that she's unavailable? Through the completely not her fault circumstances of having COVID nineteen and not wanting to give it to other people, but I'm I am so fucking done with her quarantine because I want to hang out with my friends. You know what? I feel like this is precisely the right mood to be in to talk about tragedy girls. Hundred percent. I'm o- I'm always really I'm always operating as a tragedy girl. <laughs> how I'm, come? I am, how come so you don't have a podcast called Tragedy Girls? I, they, they, they beat me to it with the title. Well, you can't like trademark a title or something like that, but it would just feel, it would just feel so gauche. Um, I, it would, I, I, I don't, who am I? Am I the, am I the Brianna Hildebrand? I'm probably the, um, Alexandra Ship of mm. the two of them. Like, mm-hmm. I, that's probably more my personality between these two, but it is, it is absolutely, uh, why this movie sang to me so much. When I first saw it, because it was like, oh, yeah, these two friends who are obsessed with each other and like jealously guard one another's time. But at the same time, like um, in, in a way that like we probably talked about on this very podcast before, if, if not on others, just the ability and, and Jennifer's body succeeded in this way too. the ability to have characters, like female friendship characters that are both obsessed with each other, mm-hmm. but who do not necessarily forsake any other kind of relationship in their life in mm-hmm. that like toxic female friendship single white female kind of way in order to exist with one another like they're interested in boys like they're one of them starts like seeing a guy and it puts a strain on their friendship but it is not like 
a comment on the friendship that either one of them spends time with another person. Mm-hmm. There, there still is the option for them to have lives outside of this friendship, even though the core of their lives is that friendship. So it's not like all gross and totally like, I don't know where I end and you begin and like nightmare hell if we're not spending every second together, which is like a fun kind of codependency even of itself. But there deserves to be a multitude of representations in uh, extremely close and intimate female friendships. So let's backtrack a little bit. And before we dive into the friendship element, which is, I think, the core theme of this film. Yeah, it's um, a friendship love story. Totally. You know, that unnamed female friendship love story that is the the sandbox love. Yep, never dies. Uh, What is, can you summarize Tragedy Girls for me? Yes, Tragedy Girls is the story of two I forget where they live. Uh, um, it's just generic uh, Midwestern Rosedale. I was going to say, it's got to be Midwest, right? Yeah, like, I was thinking only of region. Midwest, it seems yeah. like, yeah. Midwest, I am not like, sure, Midwest to be nowhere. honest. The, 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 the town is called Rose, uh, Rosedale, but I don't know if it's a real town or if it's a town that's made up for, for the movie. It's just like, you know, a generic uh, American high school in the med- Midwest. Yeah, like Midwest Nowhere USA. And it's mm-hmm. these two girls who... Um, are best friends and very pretty. Uh, they are desperate for both, like, sort of something to happen around them in this town and also to get a lot of fucking attention. Mm-hmm. Like, this movie came out, was this 2017? 2017. Yeah, 2017. This movie came out, it was becoming zeitgeisty to incorporate clout chasing and influencing into depictions of uh, teen life. And it was, you know, we were aware that this was becoming a, we were aware that this was now a ubiquitous and sometimes uh, threatening and and (laughs) omnipresent part of life, social media, and sort of how it was changing our brains and changing our priorities and whether or not it was making us like kind of little sociopaths. The other thing is that horror is experiencing at this point in time already a resurgence. So it's now become quite commercial commercially viable again Mm -hmm. and also specifically women and girls enjoying and talking and engaging with horror has also become massive Mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. or well on the way to becoming massive yeah that bubble is expanding rapidly and this is also the year of get out so everybody's talking about horror everybody's talking about horror um and so these these two teen girls they endeavor to they are constantly trying to get people to follow us on social, follow us on social media, like, like and subscribe. And they, there is, there are killings happening in their town and they endeavor to harness the sensation around these killings into them having like exclusive insider access into what's going on because they get involved with the killer in a surprising way and then decide, uh, once they have the killer sort of in their grips, to then just become the story themselves. And in order to perpetuate the hysteria in the town, the tragedy girls, uh, which becomes their their handle, uh, the tragedy girls start killing people because they can't let the fervor die. They can't let their proximity to the sensation go away. And they do, in fact, become little, little phenomenons, little phenomena, uh, because they are the ones sort of at the epicenter of everything that's going on uh, with reports and sentiments and thoughts and prayers. And it is also at the same time, a best friend love story about these two um, haughty little sociopaths 
who are sort of finding their way through adolescence, deeply connected to one another, uh, only aware of one another, the only ones aware of one another's secret about being murderers, but also having feelings and having hormones and having to navigate through the end of high school together. So it's a good, it's a fun romp of a time with great, uh, with great inserts of blood and guts in it too. <laughs> and Josh Hutcherson is here as the resident moody hot guy who uh, has a preposterous social media following seemingly for just posting photos of like him and his motorcycle. Oh, I will get back to Josh Hutchinson because he has showed up now twice in this teen horror season as a <laughs> horror heartthrob, which is a term wow. that my friend producer Jen Handorf coined on that episode when we talked about detention and she, yeah. but I will, I digress. I will come back to that in a minute. First, I want to talk about Michaela as played by Alexander Ship and Sadie as played by Bayana Hildebrand Mm-hmm. like and their characters and their friendship like you already started talking about it but this really is about them being friends and them being the right the similar kind of crazy and the similar kind of fans and the similar kind of hungry as well which uh-huh, is uh-huh. fairly rare i think in these type of high school female friendships like it usually is opposites isn't it it's not two girls who are of similar levels of popularity similar levels of attractiveness right. similar mm-hmm. tastes and same goals like they seem to be going side yeah, by side in parallel one's towards the a same Jennifer thing and one's typically a needy yes so what do you make about the the friendship of Michaela and Sadie? I I I really I mean it it was at the time when it came out it was really um it didn't feel like something it, it wasn't common it was not commonplace it's barely commonplace now mm-hmm. but it didn't feel like something I had seen in the way that it centered this best friendship um without in a not veiled way, just in a very forward, unselfconscious way. It wasn't about these two girls feel so strongly for, I feel like what we often see um, in this space is two girls who feel so strongly for each other and who are either so resolved in that certainty with one another, like say like a heavenly creatures, mm-hmm. that they're willing to do horrible things mm-hmm. in secret to protect this dynamic or they feel such a strong connection to one another and either one or both is so sort of unsure about the implications of it that there is a sort of talking around the true nature of the intimacy that they share. Like, because there's just a discomfort with the broad uh, paintbrush of queerness that doesn't necessarily have to mean you're fucking your best friend for you guys to have like a fluid relationship or have a very sort of shrinking space between the two of you where we're sort of um, romance and non-romance, platonic and non-platonic become blurry. It was just these two girls seem very sure of one another, very celebratory of their weirdness. They don't feel afraid of how their dynamic appears to other people. Mm-hmm. There is not like a, there doesn't seem to be a worry or concern that they will be misperceived as like, dykes Mm -hmm. because they hang out together all the time and just that that easy comfort with Sadie and Michaela being each other's one and only and the sort of lack of the lack of plot involved with them having to like be 
worried about that or having to factor in like a societal expectation around it. Like there's conflict between the two of them because there's conflict in fucking stories. <laughs> because the the thing that matters most in this movie is in fact the relationship between these two characters. It's the central relationship. So it doesn't feel like it's contriving a plot to pull these girls apart or make them realize that they had to outgrow this closeness in order to become more of themselves. No, they just go through a rough patch and come back to one another in the end. And I like that this I like that the process of their arc does not involve now and then. Perfect film. Mm-hmm. There, there is that, and it, this, and this is a very true part of coming of age as well. And so I do not think this is invalid at all, but there is that bit of melancholy near the end of now and then where when the girls finally get the tree house at the end of the movie and Demi Moore is narrating to us and she's telling us like, you know, we bought that tree house because it was supposed to be our place sort of like together us against the world. And what, what happened over the course of that summer was we learned how to be sort of independent of one another. Mm-hmm. Also a vital lesson, learning to be independent and not be codependent, not be totally codependent on, 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 you know, relationships in your life. But there's like a sadness to that too, where like part of that coming of age tale was a, these girls learning to be apart from each other. Whereas in tragedy girls, it's these girls um, learning that each other is where they want to be. Like knowing that and then being reaffirmed in that and coming together after a period of like fighting with one another to be like holding hands in the fucking spooky masks at the school dance at the end. I love that the movie knows that Sadie and Michaela weren't wrong in the first place just because they're fucking crazy for how much they love one another. (laughs) A thing that is not connected to how fucking crazy they are is their love for each other. And that's just a really nice inclusive thing that even now feels like a special thing to see in horror in 2017 felt especially unique and then when we see it in Jennifer's body like back in the aughts felt like borderline fucking brand new even though it wasn't it still did so mm-hmm. that is that is what I love about the friendship of of Sadie and Michaela that in the end it is honored as something that will continue even more strongly than it did before and not because of the blood pact that they had but because they're just they're just each other's fucking lobster, man. I think the thing that's that's coming up as well in what you're saying is there's like there's like two options, right? Either the girls grow apart, like now and then. Mm-hmm. By the way, perfect movie. Perfect movie. I know Absolutely you love perfect. now and then. I, I know you love now, love now and then. Listen, if any editors are listening, I've got a book pitch ready to go on now and then. I will write fifty thousand <laughs> words on now and then. I will. You know I will. I fuck. That's you're like, like I'll have it done by end of day. Literally. Like perfect it's been movie. waiting to come out of her. You know what? You know why it's also perfect? Uncredited Brendan Fraser cameo, but I digress. Like that is wow. the first time I saw that man, and I have never forgotten the moment. That's that is akin to Leo coming into frame <laughs> as Romeo in Romeo plus Juliet. But I digress. Perfect movie. Anyway. Young Brendan was such a pristine beauty. He's just still he's a handsome fucking man. But that like that 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 perfection, that flawlessness, that radiance of youth radiating off of brendan fraser Oof, God. i cannot anyway the fact that the <laughs> lesson as you said is that those the the two ones that i wanted to bring up was actually either the girls fall away fall away so they discover their own individual personalities and the group yeah. no longer functions because the group only functioned because they were sort of complementing each other and becoming yeah. one full personality yeah here what i love is that they 
are both very strong personalities, but they are aligned. They don't necessarily, yeah. they're parallel, like I said before, but what they learn at the end of the movie is not that they can, it's not that they're not allowed to have or want other things or other yeah. relationships, is that ultimately the friendship that they have is their priority. So they exactly. choose very consciously choose. and deliberately to prioritize that friendship. Of course, this being a teen slasher film, they make that choice by killing other people. But yeah. like you mentioned, that brand of psychopathic crazy actually has nothing to do with their friendship with one another. They kind of no. sit side by side quite neatly. Yeah, like the 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 closeness that so often, and again, a genre I love: toxic female friendships. Uh, one of the absolute best genres of cinema. Give give it to me in a program that month. I already did. That was my first programming gig at the Bay of Fire. There it was, she is. It was a it was a she season. has the priorities. <laughs> I insisted. I we did screen now and then because I would absolutely never fucking allow a female friendship season to happen without now and then. (laughs) And the only listen, if I if I'm allowed to go on a a small digression on my own podcast, I I do. Uh, that film has been done such a disservice by the home entertainment industry. Fucking every Ooh. six months, there is a new Blu-ray edition of Stand By Me. Don't get me wrong, another perfect You're movie. Right. But there is not a single Blu-ray of Now and Then. And you know what? Even at the British Film Institute, bless the program research people, because we had to screen that from a digi beta. There was no other materials wow. available to screen Now and Then. A oh perfect film. I this is I won't take us in any 2018. further further, but I will say just as a as a testament, as a testament to what you are saying. You know what is coming out that I'm so excited about on Blu-ray, ladies and gentlemen. Fucking back to the beach, starring Frankie Avalon and Annette Futicello. Back to the beach from the late 1980s, the reboot of the Beach Blanket Bingo. Frankie and Annette universe. I mean, that call- movie is getting a Blu-ray release. And, and yet, now and then does and not. yet, now and then does not. Damn, you guys. Seriously. That is some bullshit. And I fucking love Back to the Beach. Love Back to the Beach. Psyched for that Blu-ray. Can't, that is, that is a shocking comparison to know that now and then has not even been given that treatment. When I'm about to get back to the beach. <laughs> Dead. 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 I take it you have not seen Back to the Beach? I have not. That's I completely get it. I completely get it. I'm mad about it. <laughs> you know what also has a bl- bullshit Blu-ray release? Poison yeah. Ivy. <laughs> it fucking deserves better. That is so... Wow, mm-hmm. this is you need to turn into your own second sight films. <laughs> Listen, I love the second sight folks. I love. Oh God, them. yeah, yeah. They're you're brilliant. you're an affiliate there. You're, yes. you're you're part of the you're part of the gang. Yes, I mean the second, the second, Chris. If you're listening to this, the second <laughs> we're sending it to him. The second they work on Poison Ivy, I will like I will fold the envelopes myself for that. <laughs> I will I will carry I will drive things to and from printers. I will hand write all the program notes if needed. <laughs> if need be. Yeah. See, such is such is the such is the desert we live in. Um <laughs> for respect of films revolving around uh 
misplaced female intimacy and sincere and loving female intimacy. Honestly, but I digress. The other thing that I wanted to talk about their friendship is, and I, I, you know, you kind of mentioned it briefly, but I think it relates to the moment when this film is also released in 2017, is the fact that Michaela and Sadie are both very overtly, very much obsessed over true crime and horror. Oh, yeah. Like to yeah, the point they where really... they kidnap a, a serial killer to as to use him as a personal trainer, which I kind of yeah. love. <laughs> and I a, a thing I love I mean women I think are like the majority split of like true crime obsessives yes like it's obviously a sensation but like women there is a special thing about like true crime fandom for women and this was this was this was before it fully mm-hmm. became the true crime mm-hmm. industrial complex that it is now so that was a real savvy thing by Tyler McIntyre to incorporate um into this film Mm-hmm. To it was like yeah like take this to its logical extreme and this is exactly what you get and the thing I a thing I I like a lot too about the the dynamic with and, and just the characters themselves in in Michaela and Sadie is that they're very much kids mm-hmm. like when you when you were watching when you watch so many things from the two thousands you're like I'm watching a twenty nine year old be a child mm-hmm. and I or from and, the nineties. Yeah, and like you're like I'm, and, and and in the in in the 2000s, it's coming off the the tail of like there is that like hyper sexual styling, which again, like not we're not we're not we're not slut shaming anybody. We're like be hypersexual, lean into that. Uh, I doubt it was the choice of so many of the people rendered women rendered on screen at the time to wear necessarily the specific things that they did, but like to watch this and and feel like they truly are teenage girls with the you know taking seriously the the emotions that they're going through and the relationships in their life and the, and the stakes that revolve around those elements yes but at the same time they feel frivolous in that way mm-hmm. like they they feel styled to be kids they i feel like there is a they do a great job with the sort of like gum popping and snapping aesthetic and attitude between both Michaela and Sadie and I like that we get to sort of I like that they're with the closeness that they do have with each other there is never a a framing that would feel disingenuous than the rest of the tone of the film to make them like suddenly out of nowhere erotically interested in each other in a way that would satisfy nothing more than just like seeing two girls touch each other there is a there is a sort of purity Mm -hmm. about their um their their love and 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 affection for each other that i find very charming i would i would add that there is an element though as well that i find quite knowing about the Mm. way that they're portrayed is that yes they're styled and look like um you know either on the younger side of their 20s or like in the very you know like of age but like 18 19 and i and i want to say that probably just because she's like 25 now i want to say um brianna was probably around 18 brianna hildebrand was i might have been legitimately a child yeah she might have been like brianna hildebrand aka bj colangelo <laughs> Fuck what they do look alike. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and BJ knows I know this. And BJ knows I think this. And I have posted on the internet about this that Brianna Hildebrand <laughs> is just is just pixie BJ Colangelo. 
But like, there's a moment specifically with Michaela where they're also aware of how the aware of how the rest of the world looks at them. Oh so, like, yeah, they and I think they're they, obsessed with how the world looks. At them. No, but not only in a social media way. I think also there are several scenes in the film where Michaela specifically like turn on the sort of the nymphette aspect. Yes, Michaela play. Michaela performs it for sure. I do. I do just want to ask. I really hate the term nymphette, and I think it's. Like God, born, I haven't heard that one in a while. It's born out of a really profound misunderstanding of Lolita, and it, like mm-hmm. it became a whole thing. Imagine in movies. that—a profound misunderstanding of Lolita. I know, but it's like it's continued up until now. But also, like it's a very specific type of a female killer that has existed in cinema, particularly in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Poison Ivy being the prime oh, example. Yeah. The yeah. Crush, you know, Alicia Silverstone, Drew Barrymore, like, yeah. and a lot of those are just sexualities projected mostly on the the teenage girls with us i feel like here when they're together when they're by themselves mm-hmm. they do not give off that vibe they are not aggressively sexual but they are no. aware of how the world is ready to look at them and they're savvy enough to actually play into that role in a way that is comedic and exaggerated and absolutely for laughs and not for titillation uh-huh. oh I completely yeah i completely agree and, and I, I think that 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 code switching in the way that it is mm-hmm. does feel so sincere mm-hmm. to being a being a woman generally, but like being a, a teen girl who maybe isn't considering the implications mm-hmm. of you know the sort of monkey's paw effect <laughs> of of maybe manipulating your maybe manipulating your presentation and your persona in a way that gets you the attention that you, you perhaps think you want or sincerely do want. Or that like you just need um, there. I, I that feels like such a, a a really spot on teen girl element to incorporate in something like this, and it feels sincere in the way that they write the characters. It doesn't it doesn't feel like the performance is for the director to jack off to mm-hmm. because he just wanted to watch the dailies and see his actors like turn on the sex kitten move in these mm-hmm. scenes because that's working for him personally just feels like it's part of the characters that would really happen yeah absolutely not like when you watch an eli roth movie and you're just like oh he just does these things because he wants his fantasy in front of him (laughs) or yeah or that whole gang to be honest yeah which is like he's full on he's like he's in like print having said like the great thing about shooting Mm -hmm. an exploitation movie is the exploitation like you know i forget which one it was uh but there was there's a shot of like girls jumping on trampolines basically and literally and he said something like again it's a quote he gave to the press of being like yeah we had the shot we just ca- i just kept rolling because it's fucking sweet to see girls jumping on trampolines it's like thanks director who's in charge of a professional environment that is making a film and is responsible for the safety of the people in your charge that's cool thanks bud yeah yeah good work this good is work, not everyone. that is not what tragedy girls feels like no and going back to their obsession with true crime and horror it never gets to scream levels of meta-referential. Like they mentioned, uh-huh. they, they sort of um drop in certain titles. They drop in Martyrs. They, you know, they drop in, they have a serial killer diorama, which I found adorable. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's very much the vibe of a lot of kind of YouTube essays that I d- regularly watch um, that are mostly made by women who are like, let's talk about Jeffrey Dahmer. It's like, yes, but also with cute animations, please. Thank you very much. Um, but what I did want to ask you about is like the, the thing that's interesting that does feel a little bit meta and also quite uh, 
original, perhaps, might mm. be wrong, is that they're desperate for attention, right? And that's how they're using or attempting to use social media. But also, yes. they don't want to be bystanders. They don't want to be commentators. They want to be a part of the story. And they yeah. want to be seen as the final girls. But yes. they are also aware that in order to make that happen, they need to do the killing because the killing won't just appear around them and make them yeah. the final girls. So <laughs> yeah. what do you think about the, the killing, that- in fact, will just not happen? No, like, you know, if you want to get something done, do it yourself. Exactly. Um, and it, like, definitely don't wait for a man to do it for right. you. Like, you're going to be waiting for fucking ever. But also, yes, you are. What do you think about the way that then this teen slasher works? Because we're both meant to be like rooting for them to get all the social media followers that they want and also rooting for them to kill people because that's how they're going to get it. (laughs) Which is like, it's such a perfect, like this movie in that, in that regard specifically, it's Mm -hmm. such a perfect, like the case for the case for horror movies. Cause it's like, it's an, it's an objectively terrible thing. And we, we see what like the, we see in real life, Mm -hmm. what the meat market of that kind of attitude about generating attention built on the back of tragedy at any cost, we see what that looks like. Mm-hmm. We see the effect of it. And so it shouldn't be something we can delight in. And yet, when you watch it, you get to you get to not have to take your medicine for a while. <laughs> you get to not have to take your medicine for a while. And it's just really fun to watch the worst people imaginable revel in the exact kind of like horseshit superficial like navel gazing clout chasing trash that we should all like be against and think is repugnant and amoral and we get a root for characters that are just like shitty attention whores and it's great (laughs) it is great to root for girls who, like, in a fictional setting, mm-hmm. want attention so bad, they're gonna, like, lay waste to people to get it. And that sounds horrible, but so is the fucking world. And it's just, when you get to give yourself over to the repugnance, it is just like going on a little roller coaster ride. And it's nice to be able to enjoy vice at a distance in that way. And I will, like, but they're both doing such a bang up job in this movie. These are excellent. This is a fun movie. It's a clever premise. It's well executed. Mm-hmm. But this movie lives and dies on the charisma of Alexandra Ship and um Oh my god, we were Bri- just Brianna Hildebrand. Yeah. Brianna Hildebrand as Sadie is so fucking perfect in this movie. Her attitude, the way she moves, sets her mouth, the way she moves her eyebrows. I mean, she is a, she's, she's, she's the teen dream. Deal with it. Like that kind of fucking level of bitch. Like these girls are hatched from the eggs of jaw, that, that were, that were laid by jawbreaker. And that makes it such a wonderful thing to like, I miss the jawbreaker sensibility often. And I wonder like, Anna, do you feel like we're returning to that kind of a meanness in horror? Well, I was actually wondering upon rewatch of this film, the jawbreaker, Heather's mean girls vibe of it all. Uh huh. I think that's so much more difficult. It's as difficult to achieve proper, excellent meanness as it is to achieve earnestness. 
uh-huh. without being corny and without being tacky. And I enjoy the shit out of Tragedy Girls. But upon rewatch, I gotta admit, it did feel a tiny bit forced. Okay, okay, meanness, please say more. The meanness felt forced because I think it is so, it needs to be timeless, if you know what I mean. It either needs mm-hmm. to be super niche and specific mm-hmm. of this is a mean girl that could only exist in 2004, or mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is a mean girl that is universally mean. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's the the fact that they, okay, I think the thing that makes it unsuccessful in those is because is the whole social media of it all. Okay, okay. It's because do you, think, do you think there would have been a way around that? Or is it inherent to the reliance on social media as a premise that it, it couldn't it couldn't I, stand up to time? Well, this is the thing. I think because social media has moved so quickly, and especially the, totally. the discourse and the style of creator that has become mm-hmm. popular, the way that they speak to camera, the way that they say things, it it's basically aging as we speak. There's probably a new Completely. way of doing things by the time we finish recording this episode. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that is the element that I think has really like placed them in a time that doesn't necessarily make it either so specific that they feel of a very particular moment because it uh-huh. just it feels too broad stroke social media. It doesn't mm-hmm. even feel native to YouTube. It doesn't feel native to TikTok. It's essentially that is a very good point. It's essentially like watching Scream Four, which I really enjoy, but like nobody, it like it does not belong in our comprehension of online speak or uh-huh. of online creators or even kind of horror commentators online. Uh huh. Uh huh. Because it's sort of t- it's too broad strokes to be specific to a time. And it's too specific to the internet as a concept to function as a as a universal timeless meanness, if that makes sense. So it's no, kind of it's trying to very do very interesting. It's trying to do both, but in trying to attempt both, it doesn't succeed in either. Do you think was there? And that's another thing. Where like at was? Do you think that is a result of perhaps not a, a detailed enough? Uh, investigation of of social media perhaps so as to just sort of demonize it in broad strokes or is that because in 2017 was that where we were in 2017 was like was that I don't know was there a way around that in 2017 Mm -hmm. to nail it in the way you're talking about because the answer could very well be no Mm -hmm. I I don't know because our understanding of the intricacies of these things has advanced. I don't, this is a fascinating conversation. Okay. So the, and I'm thinking of my feet here, but I'm thinking of films that have kind of, that successfully feel over time and films that kind of tackle social media, right? So I'm thinking of Ingrid Goes West. Oh, um, right, 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 years right, right. Okay, yeah. But the thing where I think it fails, uh, and I'm thinking of other sort of tech themed or social media themed horror films mm-hmm. like uh, Hashtag Horror, which uh, I've spoken about on this podcast and is like very underseen and very weird and problematic in its own ways, but also kind of a very interesting uh, non-capsule of social media. Uh-huh. And in the same way as this film, Tragedy Girls, it does not name anything, which mm-hmm. is what makes it impossible for it to be timed. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Ingrid Goes West, it's specifically about Instagram. Mm-hmm. And like Unfriended, for example, 
is very is very much a time capsule because it's very Skype heavy, very Facebook heavy. Those mm-hmm. platforms belong at a particular time frame of the mm-hmm. lives, the cultural lifespan of the internet, right? When mm-hmm. you try to go generic the web, generic the hash- web, yeah yeah, 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 generic the interwebs, generic hashtag tragedy girls, hashtag follow us or whatever the 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 shit that they say. There was yeah. a time where people spoke like that. There was a time where people used those expressions unironically and kind of used hashtags all over the place yeah mm-hmm. that that's like that did happen but it happened in particular platforms in particular ways trying to allude to them without making it explicit what it is that you're talking about kind of portrays either misunderstanding or misallocation of internet speak and internet culture uh-huh. or it's trying to be so broad strokes that so as to not age the film but by doing that mm. it makes it impossible to connect to it from an from like from an internet perspective then that makes sense because if you're appealing to a younger audience who've been brought up in internet speak and have evolved with internet culture as internet culture has also evolved then this Uh means nothing whether a singer goes west it's like yeah i recognize the pinks i recognize the hearts i recognize what it looks like when you get over 50 likes in a really short space of time on instagram Uh i recognize the the like the design of the logo from when it looked in this particular way it's like it is specific and not shying away from the culture that emanates from a particular platform in a particular platform in a particular moment of time where Uh there's because this is trying to be so broad it's like I know that they're being YouTubers, but I'm not seeing the interface, uh-huh. and the way that they're creating the content seems kind of strangely not coherent with the history of YouTube. So I just don't; it doesn't fit in internet culture, if that makes sense. This is really I, I feel like what a fascinating aspect of this to me is that you have something with um like going you know not to pull jennifer's body this i didn't mean to get a jennifer's <laughs> body again but that movie was so lambasted at the time in part because of the very diablo cody speak of the of the dialogue it was like people don't talk like this or this you could just hear the creator coming through it so much it doesn't feel realistic or this is it's so it's so over the top that you can't even sort of surrender yourself to to the environment because you can't connect to it at all. But what I think that ultra specificity of Diablo Cody speak had accomplishes in the long run <laughs> is that it makes it almost trans it transcends time because actually that wasn't how people talked in 2009. No. Like that wasn't even how necessary all of Devil's Kettle talked. It was how Jennifer spoke. Yeah. And as a result of her proximity to Jennifer, it was needy awkwardly incorporated some things that Jennifer would say into her own vernacular and they would always kind of have a hitch about it because it sounded funny when needy said it. But like it is I think allowed the film to age better well, because it's the there same was way... that extreme detail to it. It's the same way as Heather's. One, Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. the same way yeah, as Heather's. Yeah, yeah. The Heather speak doesn't belong to a particular era. It's not how people yeah. spoke in 1989. It's not how people spoke ever. But that's what allowed it to be sort of timeless by design, right? It's the extreme mm-hmm. specificity. And this is what I mean with tragedy girls and with kind of social media focus horror in general. Like you either commit to a, to a moment in time of the internet or make it so specific that it actually exists in its own different plane of ex- of of internet speak, and because yeah. it's trying to just be too broad, just generally screens, videos, hashtags, 
it, it kind <laughs> yeah. of that that part is the thing that doesn't quite gel for me that mm-hmm. seems to be trying too hard whether it's like if it went super 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 nation specific and it's like in their little whatever uh town in in the midwest they yeah. just had a completely unique language and way of speaking and they had this like uh-huh. specific platform that they use because i don't know they couldn't clear the rights for like instagram or something like that fine but then like make it make it ultra niche so that you do exist in that otherworldly space that heather's and and jennifer's body exist uh-huh, but uh-huh. it but it's trying to do that by the way that they speak you know the way that they especially speak to other people when they're kind of in their natural real personalities and not performing the being the nice girls or the like the president of the student association or like the victims for the public for the public's eyes yeah um, because they're doing all of these different performances right which i found really really fun to watch and really interesting because when you see them switch to themselves it's hilarious yeah. because we're in on it like we know the stuff that they're doing and how morbid they really are and that's <laughs> yeah. like that's got that kind of ginger snaps vibe to it yeah, 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 yeah. No, that is th- Ginger Snaps is a really good invocation on that one too, because that having like nothing to there was a there was a technologized aspect in like chat room early early social media kind of speak to Jennifer that feels like w- the way white gays on the internet talk now. Whereas watching totally outside of that social media context, like late nineties, early two thousands with Ginger Snaps. There is such a specificity about the way that Ginger and Bridget communicate with each Mm -hmm, other mm -hmm. that watching that movie even now, it makes the world of their own feel so complete. Totally. That it's like, oh, this wasn't like how we talked in the 90s. It was how how Ginger and Bridget talked to each other in their weird little corner of like Canadian isolation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So that's that's the one part where I think it fails. I think the... I understand, and the thing that's really well-performed and well-written is their need and desire for attention, which is the thing Mm -hmm. that unites them as friends. And this is also why their friendship trips up, right? It's because they get distracted from the goal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. They start wanting different things for a little bit before they come back together. (laughs) Before they, 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 they start in murder and they come back together in murder. Yeah, exactly. It really, it's such a, because it's a movie that it, it was a it was a it had it was um it had a sensation around it at the time, Tragedy Girls. And it, I was gonna I, ask you because like I, str- I I can't remember I watched a screener somehow. I tried to screen this film actually several mm. times in the UK and con- consistently hit a wall because it never um it never got released here. I think it played one festival, maybe a couple of festivals, but yeah, that's it. It never really got traction in the UK. So what was it like in the US? It was I mean it wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't um like, you know, a takeover of media by any stretch of the imagination, but it was one of those things like I remember the year it came out, like you just kept hearing about it sort of like in a in a in an indie circles festival context. Like it well, oh, and tragedy girls. Like it felt like one of those sneaky things that you would expect to see on the end of every best of list at, at, at the end of every year's best of list because it would be like everybody who had been murmuring about tragedy girls all year long was finally going to like put it in wax and you were going to have sort of like consecrated this little indie movie that could doing girl horror at a time when like girl horror wasn't necessarily proliferating and from a point of view of like you know in the tradition of Heather's in the tradition of the Jennifer's body in the tradition of a mean girls kind of thing but it the afterlife of tragedy girls has been 
interesting to me because I do feel like, I feel like there is a sentiment. Is this how you felt about it? Here's the question. Mm -hmm. Did you trip on its broadness in its conversation about social media at the time you watched it? Or is this something in looking at it now, you're like, oh, I see how that was a thing that worked in the immediate, but doesn't at this point. Definitely on rewatch. Definitely on rewatching it literally today for this podcast is uh-huh. when I noticed it. And I think it might be because um, uh, I haven't rewatched it since I originally saw it in 2017 or 18, around that time. And also there's been the way that social media texting and kind of totally. people's need for attention online has shifted <laughs> yeah. so much both in real life and online and uh-huh. also in the way that it's depicted in movies like i even remember that at one time we thought that jason reitman's like men women and children was an original or good portrayal of social media and how it affects oh, yeah. people totally like, we had some learning to do and that learning had to coincide with the evolution of our relationship with the internet in general and yeah. obviously everything has been shifted because of the panini so like definitely a rewatch so and because now i've seen so many and there's been so many integrations and examples of of exploring even within the sub mm-hmm. sub genre of like toxic female friendship movies yes even within that sub sub genre there's been interesting kind of social media specific or internet specific um portrayals that work really really well and it just kind of it made me look at this aspect of the film in a different light and i and i asked that because i think there had it's not like a movie that has fallen out of favor but now that we're talking about it Hmm. i am thinking about like i have been surprised as somebody who because the the i feel like the the central friendship i think to me the central relationship between Michaela and Sadie it holds up to me I enjoy it as much as I did when I saw it at the time um and so that's the part that I always go back to but I do feel like this is a movie that I have been surprised to find um a chorus of people for whom rewatch value was for them like kind of surprisingly low Mm. like not like wow I hate this movie now but with with distance from it coming out, with distance from 2017, mm-hmm. feeling like they were not as enamored of it upon later watches down the line as they were when they first saw it. Mm-hmm. You, you are not the first example of a person I have heard say this. This is very, int- this is, I'm fascinated by this suddenly. And the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, and of course, I'm bringing it all back to the teenness of it all, because after all, it is the teen horror season. And I think this is also one of the things that has kind of lowered the rewatchability factor for me. Mm-hmm. Is the I I know that there's so many conventions around teen movies, and especially American teen movies, and kind of the milieu and the setting of high school. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the high school dynamics of this entirely work again because the tapping into too many tropes. Mm-hmm, without creating a, any new a, ones it's a tropes clearing house it is it yeah. is certainly a tropes clearing house but there is no there is no additional one you know the, you mm-hmm. know what i mean like sometimes the most successful uh, certainly some of the most memorable high school movies whether horror or not that we can remember sort of add something they have yeah. all the tropes and then they That's add a, a new it's like you know in scream randy Randy is the new addition. Randy is the like yeah. the horror obsessed meta voice of of reason in a way. Yeah, that we add like that character should not be memorable, but it is because we kind of never really <laughs> quite seen someone like that who is essentially narrating the movie back to us as the movie uh-huh. is happening. And like you know, I'm even if we go back even more, like someone like fucking um, James Spader in Pretty in Pink. 
Like no, we've, you're, you're, we've like, always they, had douchey jocks, but we've never had a douche who also really desperately wants to fuck the protagonist and tries to neg her into fucking him. Like we've yeah. never had a sexy douche like that. Like I don't think I've ever. One. I don't think I've ever liked. It. I don't think I've ever been so attracted to a bad guy as I have been. Literally, Peter, I mean, and sometimes they're really subtle, or like even people like Ferris Bueller. Like we never, we're never really supposed to root for the slacker who lies to everyone and is kind of an <laughs> yeah. asshole. But the entire movie makes us yeah, root who's like for making him. Sloane's life harder. Yeah, and in Heather's, we're rooting for a girl who is basically enabling and sleeping with a murderer for the entire movie, and yeah. it does work. Like there, you know, when it's an evolution of the mean girl trope in Heather's. Yeah. So like, there's always the you know everything we like all the ingredients that we like and then like a surprise ingredient that's just going to elevate the salad you know it's like this spri- <laughs> yeah. it's like the sprinkling the of really innovative dressing it's like not that it's not the dressing it's the nuts it's like you make <laughs> a really good salad and then you add it's some wall some roasted walnuts yes it's the crunchy finisher it's either the like <laughs> clusters of flaxseed or it's the of like roasted sunflower it's seeds a, or walnuts candied walnut i love it's no, my it's I, my favorite thing to compare all movies to food, Jordan. No, I there and I, that's what you say is completely true. Of like, I'm thinking now of like Clueless. It mm-hmm. was it was a Shakespeare adaptation, and it created mm-hmm. this fanciful world where a in the 90s uh, we loved rich people, and the rich people were going to save us. <laughs> so we loved <laughs> we loved rich people, and so like it was entering this world of rich people with this hyper real style. Mm-hmm. Watching. Don't tell mom the babysitter is dead. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. a, they're killing the they they accidentally kill the babysitter. Well, they don't kill the babysitter, but she dies. And but like to watch Sue Ellen become a working woman and her clothes and her fashion and her style, like that is inextricable from sort of like the the everlasting power of right on top of that rose of of um. Don't tell mom the babysitter is dead. Obviously, bring it on. Like it is mm. similarly to like a Diablo Cody speak, a, da- a Mark and Daniel Waters speak in Heathers. We have this insular language that you watch now and it's such like a beloved sort of Christmas card to the time mm-hmm. that it was made. And, and you're right. The Tragedy Girls is sort of amorphous in that way, mm-hmm. which like I think it, I think it really speaks to, I think it really speaks to its, um. there's almost, a, there's a kind of genius to doing something that fits so perfectly in its moment that is truly such a piece of candy mm-hmm. that it really does dissolve in water. But you liked it so much for those few seconds that it was like rolling around in your mouth. Like it, it mm-hmm. like that in and of itself, like to make a movie, to make a movie that can sweep people up and have so little staying power, perhaps mm-hmm. for so many. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I think it all underscores too saying before, like how good Alexander Shipp and Brianna Hildebrand are in this movie because of the way that this movie does stick for me is 100% revolves around how how fully embodied these characters are by these two actresses. I think it is a testament to it is a testament mm-hmm. to perhaps two performances that don't get enough credit in a movie that maybe got more credit than it should have gotten for its its cleverness with its tongue in its cheek because it was, you know, borrowing largely from many other things. And I say that as a fan of it. Mm-hmm. This is a very I'm not I, I'm not normally I'm a I'm a cheerleader. I love yeah. being a cheerleader. And it's it's always a healthy exercise for me to find the things that don't succeed with people that I actually trust to like yourself to to bring those criticisms to the fore where it's not just like people bitching on the fucking internet 
Um, it's not just film journalists. No, and I, like don't annoying. don't get me wrong. I really like Tragedy Girls. Yeah, 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 and, yeah. And I deeply, deeply enjoyed watching it. I do, and I think I definitely think there's things that change depending on the time when they're released, the context mm-hmm. in which we watch them, and you know how you know a movie can be good and be not rewatchable. <laughs> and also, you you cannot rewatch, uh, you cannot divorce. I think a film, especially you know the sub sub genre of teen movies of horror movies of teen horror movies of girl horror movies from the context mm-hmm. you know like you know we you've spoken as the world's foremost scholar on Jennifer's body of just Indeed. how important the context for that film's original failure and its subsequent success is uh-huh. like and for instance like the internet cannot be divorced from the reclamation of jennifer's body and i do and i do find it really interesting to like think about these films and the other thing is like some films that you see at festivals are great in that specific like great with a capital g in that particular space Uh uh-huh like the criticism or the or the 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 way that we speak about certain films, the hype and the buzz of a festival cannot be separated from, you know, how people speak about film initially. And those, you know, those initial festival reviews, all those things, like, they do live on. But it doesn't mean that that opinion is necessarily the most considered or even, like, you're. it might be considered for the time. And then sometime passes and you recontextualize your own opinion. That's also fine. I almost, like... It's I, almost I, gave, sometimes I feel like like people... Films should almost need to be re-reviewed, like ever, like after five to ten years after they come out, to like accurately reflect a, a critical aggregate score. Because, it's- well, you're expecting too much of film criticism then, because mostly, you know, <laughs> you know the the art of criticism is in the debate and the conversation, and you know mm-hmm. the the exploring and teasing a part of ideas that are contained by a piece of art. In this case, a film, not a star or number rating <laughs> or percentage. So, like, uh-huh. you're asking too much, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like thinking of the Ospod. And how, you know, our whole reason for being on that that podcast is to to talk about the the unjustly maligned horse in the mm-hmm, 2000s that mm-hmm. I, I watch now and I'm truly like, I'm sorry, what were you what were you wanting that wasn't here? Like mm-hmm. looking at like not that everything deserves to be a hundred percent, but like the idea of things that have like a fucking ten percent or something. It's like, no, really guys, what did you want the roommate to be? Well, I think like, there's, I, you've just you've I, just hit that, and again, this is another digression. I do apologize, but I think it's so interesting because you've hit the nail on the head on something that's a bed bug of mine, of uh, with a lot of criticism in general. And I don't mean any one particular critic or anything like that. I probably have I've probably done this myself multiple times, and I try to catch myself when I do it. Mm-hmm. You're meant to be talking and reviewing and criticizing and critiquing the thing that you're watching not the thing that you would like it to be certainly so yeah and the yeah. amount of times that i read and review says so like well it could have been this or it should have been that or it should have tried to be this other thing i was like yes babe but also i love dream casting but it's not doesn't make me a casting director <laughs> yeah. you know, nobody's yeah, like- fucking listening to me about like who i think should be cast as lestad but like it's still fun to do, but just don't. Con- I'm, it doesn't mean it's casting. It's why I think Angelica Jade Bastian is such like an important critical voice because she mm-hmm. she really does she really does meet the work I think for what it's doing, but also holds it up to the standard of what it could be 
with within its own framework. And I, I think she does such a beautiful job of demanding more mm-hmm. without ex- without going into movies, having a whole conception of what they were going to be before she got there. I, I think she brings such an art to criticism in that way. Oh, it doesn't feel I mean, just like yes. bitching and complaining. I mean, you we've spoken about this, you know, for a fact that I like stan Angelica's work so much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All we all we thinking people should, <laughs> but yeah, that's it's a it's a there's like two there's that, and I think the value of rewatching things, especially when talking about them or especially when writing about them, is that our own contexts change and our own ideas change, yeah. or you know, hopefully they do. Hopefully, ideally, yeah, hopefully, hopefully people are not truly. static. So, like, that's why it's also interesting. Like, the way that I watched Tragedy Girls, I remember, you know, even if I don't remember specifically where, I definitely watched it in the link, but not not at, like, a physical festival. But it's also a moment when, like, the final girls themselves were just barely a year old. So, <laughs> the context of, you know, watching and experiencing, like, girl horror and female-centric horror was so fresh and exciting that, oh, like, yeah. you did demand a lot less from it. Whereas yes. what I would demand from a film like Tragedy Girls Now was completely changed and shifted. Mm-hmm. And and similarly for, like, teen movies. They have also shifted and changed. Um, and the other thing is like the the Molly Haskell quote that I really love going back to is, you know, there's the movie that exists and there's your memory of the movie that you watch. Yeah. And they're two different things. That so like sometimes cool. in rewatching something and reconsidering your original opinion or memory of it. No, in reconsidering your original opinion of it, you're also reconsidering your memory of it. And sometimes it's okay to like like something, but not be in love with it anymore. I think that I think that is a perfect I think that is a perfect encapsulation of sort of like the festival effect. Yes. And like the I remember when Emily Yoshida saw um us at when mm-hmm. it I think it was like the secret screening or like the surprise screening at South by Southwest when it um first per- it showed for audiences. Mm-hmm. And I remember her um tweeting about being like the vibe in this room mm-hmm. is so fucking high like high frequency right now mm-hmm. like I don't even know how to think and and like that was going into the start of the movie she was very aware of just this like propulsive energy the thought of jordan keel's follow-up to get out Mm -hmm. felt like a concert environment yeah and then when it ended she was she gave just like a sentence of a thought but then was like i can't actually like put my thoughts together about this fully or write my review until I get distance from the room that I just saw it in. So mm-hmm. I'm going to hold off on actually mm-hmm. contributing anything else because she just knew she couldn't divorce what she was going to say from the space in which she watched the movie. And the other thing is like, and again, you know, we we're just talking about this all before we're hitting record, but I've literally just come back from the Cannes Film Festival last night, late last night. Yeah. And like, it's a perfect pressure cooker, right? But it also my depends God. on what you're looking at the films for in that environment. I think that matters so much because I'm, I was going there with a dual mission as both press and a film programmer. So like the Mm -hmm. vibe is important when you're programming because you are looking for audiences and you're thinking about Mm -hmm. audiences and you're thinking about how, of how a film will play in a room and the room in Cannes is not going to be the same room, uh, as Fantastic Festival. It's not going to be the same room as the BFI. It's not going to be the same room as the Edinburgh Film Festival. So like 
you consider all those things and you judge from the vibe. Mm-hmm. But then when you think just as a as a critic, it's what you were where you're talking about Emily. It's like you do have to go and think about things, but very often you can't. Like I had to write a review of yeah. Elvis within an hour of watching it. And oh I filed God. it within an hour and a half of finishing the film. And like, of course I'm gonna revisit that film. And my experience will have changed and my opinion will have changed mm-hmm. or it will have, you know, marinated a bit more. Even like a day after it marinated a bit more. So like mm-hmm. you do it, the opinions that you put out into the world about a film or that you have for yourself are so infected by the vibe of the festival and the vibe of that room in particular, which is why all those fucking reports of walkouts, vomiting, and oh, even yeah. standing ovations. Listen, they like they matter, but they matter for a specific person for a specific purpose. Yeah, and they don't matter that much. <laughs> I mean, kind of any round of applause stops mattering when you hit like you exceed five minutes. It's I like, mean, well, now we're just now we're just my, stroking. I, I can't remember who tweeted it, but someone who was like, you know, the breathless reports of like a twin minute, twin twelve minute standing ovation for clothes at the Canfield Festival. Uh-huh. I'm like, who's counting them? How do you know? Yeah. Is there yeah. is there a counter that comes on? Yeah, is, is there like a designated many- yeah. stopwatch keeper at can? <laughs> is it Thierry himself? I haven't seen I haven't seen anyone keep track of the sending ovations. And I've been a part of some and I'm like they're the energy as well. I remember watching and then they danced at the at Cannes a few years ago. The have you seen this, the Georgian dance movie? I've not seen that. Oh, Georgian, you would love that film. Okay. Absolutely love I know that you love a dance movie. I love a dance movie. This is very public knowledge. But <laughs> it's it's a queer dance movie set in Georgia. Oh. You're gonna fucking love it. Okay. Um anyway, there was a standing ovation that felt so unbelievably heartfelt and just grateful right. and honest and like mm-hmm. tearful at the end of that movie that I still remember it like I don't know how fucking long it went for like it could have been two minutes it could have been 20 I don't know right. it was a good vibe everybody enjoyed the movie the people who didn't left the people who loved it stayed up they applauded they wanted the filmmakers to feel that warmth from the audience yeah that's yeah. why it matters like it also changes the experience of the filmmakers that are in the crowd with you where or if they're not yeah Who's, nobody Nobody has a standing ovation for a film where there's no one from the film present. <laughs> that is an extremely good point. <laughs> that is an extreme. And you know what? And if you do, that's the real testament. I if mean, people truly. cannot help but get on their feet and applaud mm-hmm. when fucking no one is there to clap for, mm-hmm. that's when you know it's truly transcendent. <laughs> truly. That's when you know it's promising young woman, motherfucker. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So, Jordan, what else can we talk about? What else can we say about this film? You know, it's like I I think Tyler McIntyre did a, a good a good job with this movie. Mm-hmm. But I I still it makes me wonder like the idea of like what you said, like what you would ask of it in 2022. What would a woman in 2022 do with Tragedy Girls kind of thing? Like, I I went and saw The Watcher recently. Um, outstanding. Um, and I we walked out of it. And I was with uh, I was with Sam, among, among many others. And he goes, thank God a woman wrote this. Like, he was just so, re- he, he was just so relieved that it was in those hands. Um, particularly as you're racing toward the finale. Um, and then he went and saw a movie the next day. That also dealt with women's stuff. And he texted me after he saw it and was like, 
you could abs you just talk about talk about being aware that a movie was written and directed by a man and it is fascinating it's it's amazing to be in a time where we have finally sort of the luxury it feels like and it does feel like a luxury of being able to say like oh god i i I, like if only a woman could have written it and it could be like this movie that i just saw instead of being like if only a woman if only a woman wrote this and it could be like a movie i saw in the fucking 90s sort of situation like it does feel like the the wish for a a a a woman or a queer person or just like a non a non cisgendered individual to be at the helm of something doesn't feel like a fantasy wish anymore it sort of kind of is still but it doesn't feel as much like when you say it you're talking about a dragon guarding gold like it, it, it it talks about something that exists in like this mortal plane of conversation so like what like is that it is part of that broad generalization of the the cultural of the social media aspect of it is that actually like a sort of because generally when things don't have enough detail or they're not fleshed out enough it's kind of because things aren't being taken seriously enough to have more thought put into them hmm. so it's like is this and, and so much of and this is this is a teen girl story and there, there is so much care given to Michaela and Sadie but it does feel like sort of like a girl's concern like social media attention and clout chasing and things like that. Is it is it flippantly done or is it dashed off? Because it's just like one of those silly things that girls worry about. I don't think it is. I don't okay. think it's dashed off. I think the fact that the, it's given the preoccupation and the the weight of you know the same as applying to college and going to mm-hmm. college like they yes. see it as professionals. They look at it. You're right. You're they right. They are doing a Gale Weathers. <laughs> they are taking that sort of like um like no we're gonna do this fuck everyone else like that's kind of one of the core principles of their friendship too they are aligned on this like they know they have the tools and the ambition mm-hmm. and the drive to like do the thing that they really want to do and like fuck if everyone thinks they're morbid or whatever they get told off as well by people they get looked <laughs> yes. at weird you know they're sort of not never suspected but they are sort of off-putting to people because of that drive and i think that's what proves to me that it's not kind of senseless or, or thrown away and it's not so much about attention it's ambition and i think ambition yeah. is often like uh especially female ambition is camouflaged as superficial or a vanity project but that mm-hmm. has to do with much deeper ingrained misogyny that it has to do with like what their ambition manifests as because they could be you know they could want to be surgeons yeah. And, and you know and and I they would totally also be just as like creepy and sociopathic and murderous because we haven't even talked about the murders the fact that fucking the fact that craig robertson gets murdered by a smith machine i found particularly hilarious yeah there, the kills the 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 whole like the like cutting the body into pieces craig robinson's death like this movie has excellent violence mm. in it but the question that i wanted to start kind of ending on is what did this movie give or what does this movie tell us about the state of teen horror at this stage in Ooh. the 20 in the late 2010s you know cuz i feel like we're in a bit of i feel like we're we're having a slasher moment we are or at mm-hmm. this time and i i feel like this movie is actually coming in perhaps when that is being ushered in in earnest like because it like horror is surging at the time um horror is gaining traction among a i think broader 
mainstream movie fan base mm-hmm. than had maybe previously paid it attention mm-hmm. because I think the most the, the most recent most popular brand of horror behind what happens with Get Out and The Babadook and um, Good Night Mommy etc cetera, etc cetera, all those movies that always get tossed out um, the the thing that is people have had to like mouthwash from is the torture season mm-hmm. that came in the 2000s mm-hmm. that if that alienated you from you know sleepover horror that you like enjoyed in the 90s or the 80s uh, you know, how many people do we know who are like, I don't like that, you know, I just don't like the torture porn. Like, how do you, you know, well, I don't really watch horror. Like, I'm not really into that torture stuff mm-hmm. because there is a synonymousness. There's a synonymous nature between the two when it couldn't be further from the truth. But I think so that I think people are coming back into the fold that may have been previously alienated from it or they're feeling more adventurous to experiment because something like a get out has made them feel more safe or something like the witch has made them feel like it's not a waste of their time and this is a work of substance and art and i think at around 2017 as well this is when we're getting happy death day from Mm -hmm. chris landon Mm -hmm. and so there is a there is a sort of shot in the arm and i think tragedy girls does do this very well to the framework of the slasher Mm-hmm. The last most recent slasher wave that we see before this is the remake boom of the 2000s, where barring anything about like gore or substance or whatever, we're seeing all these old properties trotted out and revived. So there's a lot of slashers coming in the 2000s, but they're largely maligned um, movies con- consigned to the waste bin. Um, not not with me and Sam having our say about it now, they're not. But um, I think this movie is w- with that renaissance of thoughtful horror that people are realizing exists Mm -hmm. and it is coming at the same time as a wave of like really good time horror that is bringing people back in who maybe haven't engaged much since the sort of screen era and this is making them feel fun and good about watching a slasher movie again in the way that there was nothing like feel good about slashers in the 2000s everything was saturated colors and sweaty like a Michael Bay movie because he was producing so many of these films and it was boobs and boot cuts and bleached hair and bronzer Mm -hmm. and flat irons. And I think people are being sort of like beckoned back in to watching horror cinema because it's it's starting to feel fun again in a way Mm -hmm. that is divorced from the nihilism of the most recent wave of that kind of scary movie that happened in the 2000s. Now, ghost movies at this point had been happening in, um, for years at this point, thanks to yet again the reinvention of the genre by Lee 1L and James Wan, Legends. with things like Insidious, mm-hmm. and then crystallizing in that style with The Conjuring, like they brought the ghost movie home, movies like The Others, mm-hmm. making it like real credible art to watch this kind of stuff. But here now we're picking up, and it's like, guys, but let's we can have fucking fun again too, and that's carried forth with sort of Blumhouse taking up the torch, um, with sort of the party horror genre that they really love. And um, th- that they love to do and Blumhouse becoming a sort of household name in its way in the film industry among and particularly among genre fans. I feel like Tragedy Girls is at the tip of the spear mm-hmm. for what's happening in the slasher right now. And I think there is I think that's a part of the excitement that greeted it when it came out was that it was like, oh. It's not just taking old movies, redoing them and giving giving them to us at like a high polish and higher budget. I feel like it's doing the thing that Scream did and that Cabin in the Woods did to make me feel like, you know, if I'm going to be a snob about it, that I'm engaging with popcorn horror that also has commentary to it and substance to it and like a current eye for pop culture to it. You've just given us a whirlwind tour of 
the evolution of horror in the 2010s. It all just came boiling. It all just came boiling over at that moment. Did that sound right? Does that pass the smell test? It to you? does. It does. And also, it just convinces me once more to like bully you into writing a book. <laughs> I've got. I I constantly just have so much to say. You're you're absolutely right. so much, and I should. Just, and I would like to. Yes, editors, please what? commission Jordan to write a whole ass book about the horror in the 2010s. Anna, is this is Tragedy Girls a bridge of a teen movie? Then the is thing- it like a bridge between times of a teen movie? The thing or that you is mentioned. it representative of our present in like a 2022 in a recognizable way? No, I don't think it's representative of our present at okay. all. That, uh, my, my, I, my kind of thought was no. And so I, I want to hear where you were going. What I think in the way that you've described it, like it's very hard for something to break out and become like a, a, a culture wave, right? Oh, God. Which is why, you know, things like Get Out, things like, uh, you know, even I would argue like Saw is a cultural shift. Yes. The oh, yeah. one one else saw. I'd say Insidious, The Conjuring are yep. massively successful, influential in the genre, but they're not mm-hmm. cultural shifts in the way that mm-hmm. Saw was. I hear you. Um, even though, you know, no, I'm a massive fan of both of those filmmakers. So like, I'm not disparaging them. I'm just talking about the influence. And mm-hmm. whenever something like that happens, like Hostel is very much part of a moment, but it's not a cultural shift. Yeah. So I think that Tragedy Girls in the same vein is part of a moment, but it is not yeah. important enough to shift the horror dial. It is, and it's not important enough to shift the teen dial either. You know, whether it's something like, it's not horror, but it is teen associated, the series Sex Education is a shift. Right. Is a massive yeah, yeah, cultural yeah. Sh- shift in okay. the way that um, teens are portrayed in film and TV, right? Because mm-hmm. they're kind of interchangeable now. The distribution methods have collapsed. Totally. Um, Vlad. You are not a teenager. You are a senile cat. Shut up. <laughs> you are a senile cat. My point being that it's it's not a victim or necessarily a precursor. It just came around at a time where those things were just starting to crystallize. Yeah. But it wasn't, I don't know, kind of influential enough to shift a dial after it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. But it, it's, not re- it's not reductive in the way that it's like, saying something that's already been said a million times you know what it feels like this movie feels like it is on and it, it does sit actually like on this threshold that makes sense mm-hmm. it is a movie just before we were about to be like everything is queer it's it's like it's a movie it, it's like, okay, it, it wait, was wait, like wait. It, i think i think i found a sentence to crystallize it it is a movie very much of its time yeah. But doesn't necessarily say anything about its time. That is true. That is true. And I, it, it is right. It is nailing its moment, but its moment is right before the conversation. And, and it's so close to it that it's like it evokes a more intersectional conversation around horror without actually participating in that. Yes. Which makes it, which makes it feel I don't think this movie doesn't fulfill its promise. I think it is so, um, by proximity, so close to more potential that we would soon demand Mm -hmm. that it can feel like it does not necessarily live up to a promise that it wasn't making Mm -hmm. because of just like actually how much in the sandbox of that like horror diversity intersectionality 2.0 that we're very much, I think, kind of forcing the issue on right now, the people who fucking care about it. And like, because there's such a queer 
there's such an almost queer sensibility about this movie, but it's not actually a queer movie. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. It's, it's in the way that horror of the 90s, because it was being written prolifically by so many queer gay male screenwriters, is implicitly so gay, but is explicitly, of course, not allowed to be. This movie feels like if it if it was more gay or something, and not necessarily even because Brianna, because Sadie and Michaela themselves need to be like involved in that manner. I'm, I don't think that's true at all. Like women can be friends without, you know, being being something different um, or, or, or being something more physically involved in that friendship. I will be the first to attest to that. Um, but it it does. It feels now that I'm talking about it like it is this bridge movie between that sort of that that sort of fun cruelty of the mm-hmm. 2000s bef- like it is it is post that post the nihilism of the 2000s but incorporating the fun cruelty of it but pre um progressive conversation horror but it is dancing so close to the edge of it that it feels like it is between two conversations about horror like you said, without actually participating in either of them, mm-hmm. which is a fascinating product of its time. Like 2019 Tragedy Girls looks entirely different. And not that like every movie doesn't look different as time, but we're talking like even two years difference, 18 months difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 2019 Tragedy Girls, 2015 Tragedy Girls, 2014 Tragedy Girls. That's a different look entirely at a heroine's doing fucked up shit in horror situation. Because in 2013, we still fucking get Texas Chainsaw 3D. <laughs> My personal favorite Texas Chainsaw. Listen, I will not besmirch this season. I will not besmirch this conversation, Jordan, with co- <laughs> with talk of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D. No, I sir. will hear no, I will hear no, I will hear no um, disparagement of the heroic performance that Alexander Daddario gives me. <laughs> Double stick tape has never worked harder, and maybe neither has Alex Daddario, <laughs> an actress I deeply enjoy. Jordan. Anybody been... can be good in a good movie, man. To be good in Texas Chainsaw 3D, that's putting in the fucking work. <laughs> Jordan, it is always a pleasure and always an illuminating pressure at that to talk to you. I really force you to answer more questions this time because I always feel I was like whenever it ends you're always like kind of interviewing me and I think of all of our talks as just conversations and then I'm like oh I didn't hear what Anna had to say and so this time I really forced the issue by asking you more questions. Hey I like I enjoy being put on the spot on my own show. It's all good. You're making oh, I do, me, you always make me think. I do think uh, another another nod I do want to give to Tragedy Girls um, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about mm. lately with the mm-hmm. screen franchise is mm-hmm. that um, that there doesn't have to only be one. Yes. There doesn't have to only be yes. one. There does not have to be a single survivor girl. Um, she does not have to persist alone. These are these are both the villains and the heroines of the story. But like the thing that I find Scream is my favorite horror franchise for sure. I fucking love it. Mm-hmm. Best characters ever. And with with time passing and with more and more screams coming in and now new iteration screams coming out, I I, maybe the single thing that I appreciate most about the franchise is is not only is is two things. One, that Sydney is Sydney is superior in strength and um, survivability to any 
to any ghost face. Any fucker could be behind the mask, but Sydney will always survive. And that the movie, the movies have, and I, I hope they don't come back for six because I don't want anything bad to happen to them. I, I want them to retire into the good night um, and be safe and okay, Gail and Sydney. Um, but what means so much to me about the franchise as it goes on is that Sydney never had to be the only one because she had Dewey and Gail and Gail never had to be nicer than she was because Sydney was always there to be the nice girl. You didn't like Sydney is quite vanilla and she is given such life by an incredible fucking performance for decades on end by Nev Campbell, who, as far as I'm concerned, could win a fucking Oscar for playing Sydney Prescott. And Gail Weathers is so complete because Courtney Cox is so fully that character. You feel like she doesn't even get scripts at this point. She just reacts to things as Gail because she knows exactly what fucking Gail would say in any situation. And she would be an incredible sublime bitch. <laughs> and the, Sydney doesn't have to take on, be like the tabula rasa to put everything on her for any audience in the way that so many final girls do. Because Gail is there to fill the gaps of like Sydney being pure light and then Gail being like a great, like hard, hard, hard edge, a great little force, a force of the darkness. And the companion piece that is the Scream franchise between the two of them says that it doesn't take one type of woman to survive, that it doesn't take one type of woman personality wise. They're both white, <laughs> they're both white, thin, beautiful women, but it doesn't mean taking on all the characteristics of the virgin of the purity, of the selflessness, of the pure altruism. The asshole can make it to the end too because you just love her so fucking much and she's unstoppable. And I I, I do love a thing about the tragedy girls that exists in the legacy of there not needing to be only one. And I think that's something that's really been embraced in horror in the past few years that I really enjoy. We see people surviving together through the strength of the unit. And I think that's a really nice thing to take out of horror um and yeah that's the thing that i think is a really winning aspect of tragedy girls too and what better way to end this episode jordan than on a winning aspect of tragedy girls yeah a movie that we both really like yes jordan again thank you so much for being you and for your time and for your insight into this film and uh, about at least 12 others throughout the course of this <laughs> <Yeah>. conversation <laughs> Um, yeah i'm really glad we made this a milkshake <laughs> it's a trifle it's a trifle it's a trifle it is a trifle in the spirit <laughs> of but iowa cheerleader god so fucking for anyone who has not yet followed you followed you where can people find your work online and uh, where can they listen to more of you Jeez louise uh you can find hours and hours of me speaking uh, on the Feeling Scene pod that comes out every Thursday on Maximum Fun Network. Uh, we're doing very fun interviews over there. Uh, love it. Uh, the Odds pod will be back before too long. Me and Sam will have another season of talking about the intersection of pop culture and genre cinema in the millennium era of horror. Um, then there is the Whole Movie Podcast, which is currently in its podcast season, where me and my dear beloved friend, Professor Margot Carlson, as I consider her, are talking about robot politics robot liberation, robot gender, uh, in the history of robot cinema, all things robots. We side with the robots in the coming singularity wars. We will be, we will betray our species to fight for the bots. Um, that's on the record. And then there's always the Disaster Girls podcast. So 
we're talking about disaster movies. So all of those things, you could listen to so many more hours of me speaking. And uh, I will, I, you know, couldn't, couldn't end this pod without acknowledging one more time that Anna didn't want a video chat with me today. So <laughs> there was no, I couldn't see her face this entire time because we're on an audio only record. And that is going to be with me for the rest of the day. The attitude that has gone into that last <laughs> retort will has me beaming. I know you're disappointed in that, but the smile but that I'm flashing at you right now that I can't see. Yes, that I don't get to see. Yes. Um. Nope. Nope. Don't get it. And uh, <laughs> that's uh. Know that. Know that this has been a bittersweet experience for me because of that. This has been noted, and only for you, Jordan, I will sacrifice audio quality and dependability in order to allow you to see my beaming face when you tell me off. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I was just like, just like, you know, if this makes your job easier, it's what I want you to do. But like every, then I'm you just will resent demand, like, every non, second of it. <laughs> then I will just start demanding non podcast hangs for you to just talk to me on video chat because I'm not letting it go entirely. <laughs> But I, of course, want only for your happiness. And if me getting sassy with you makes you happy, well, that, too, is is positive for me. I love it. And I will be <laughs> discussing it in therapy. It's like, listen, let's let's unpack why it fills me with so much joy that Jordan is angry at me if we're not Zooming with her. <laughs> You're like, let's talk about that. We can work that into, like, my relationship with my parents, my dating life. Let's get it all on the table. Let's bring it all <laughs> Oh my goodness, Jordan. Thank you again so much. This is just gonna this is just gonna encourage Anna to keep doing this over and over again. It really to just will. like know that I'm squirming on the other end. I'm never going back to Zoom. <laughs> there it is. Throwing my happiness to the to the rocks. <laughs> For the sake of humor. Crashing it's- against it like a wave. Listen, I hope listeners are happy. This is all for you. This is all for you to enjoy this transatlantic banter with no image. <laughs> but, and I hope you, I, I know, know everybody that I was saying this before we were recording as well. So it is, it is real. I was expressing this dismay uh, immediately. <laughs> My displeasure with not seeing it. <laughs>